Hello and welcome to Blue Ringy Belladish. This is the new podcast in the National Folklore Collection with me, Johnny Dillon. And me, Claire Doohan. We both work here in the archives of the National Folklore Collection in University College Dublin. And we decided that it would be worthwhile to start a podcast in Irish folk tradition, given the enormous wealth of folklore material that we have at our disposal here at the archive between manuscripts, um, old publications in our library, and audio recordings, visual recordings in the archive here. And so this podcast will act as a platform to explore Irish folk tradition from an array of subject areas and topics, and hopefully a space where people can learn about the riches and depth of our traditional cultural heritage. Lovely. So hello folks, I'll do a little bit of housekeeping to begin with. Over the course of future episodes, we'll have a few of our colleagues here from the National Folklore Collection join us to chat about their own areas of research and interest. And as well as that, because we have such an array of visitors to the collection with such hugely varying areas of specialisation and focus, we thought we might try and get a few of those in as well to chat to us. Um, as well as that, we should say the podcast will be bilingual, so you will hear us having chats in English and Irish, and there will probably be a bit of toing and froing in each one. Some may be wholly in Irish, others wholly in English, but we think because the material comes in that form, I think it's quite true to respect it in that way, and we'll find our feet as we go along, so do, don't feel intimidated by it, and um, you'll, you'll always follow what we're chatting about. One hopes. One hopes, exactly. And so, in that point as well, we should say, so anyone who finds kind of items of interest and they'd like to follow up on, feel free to get in touch. We have um, our social media presence on Facebook and Twitter. We're available via phone, email, even send us a letter if you want to. I love getting a bit of post. Um, and we'd be so happy to share further reading, further references, kind of invite you in and show, us, uh, show you some materials. So we can't cover everything in each podcast, but do get in touch and we'll share what we know um, outside of this little space with you as well. Lovely. So shall we jump in, Johnny, and start where we start at the beginning of each of our tours, actually, to make sure that we're on the same page. Let's start with the question we always ask. What is folklore? It's a good one. Yeah, it's uh, it's one that I always always would ask students that have been teaching here in tutorials as well. And it's one around which there's generally a lot of... um, Confusion, largely, I'd say, but or at least a lot of preconceptions mm-hmm. that are uh, that people have about folklore or folk tradition in general. Um, I suppose, broadly speaking, we define it as kind of cultural expressions that display certain characteristics, which we'll get into and discuss now. But generally, when I'd ask students or, or people when they come in for a tour, what's folklore? Usually, the first thing that you hear from someone is oh, old stories. They think that it's just kind of yeah. uh, to do with with old stories in particular, or fairy tales, largely. And it is, but it's fairies also and fairies and leprechauns. For, yeah, in, in the majority of instances, but it's much it's much much broader than that. Um, as we'll kind of go to explore and, and look at over the course of these episodes going forward, but. It takes in, I suppose, uh, not just storytelling, but also, I suppose, how our forebears and ancestors lived, how they related to their natural environment, what sort of crafts they had, the material culture, what sort of rituals they observed, what beliefs they had um, about the natural world, about the supernatural, um, what sort of observances they held or how they marked certain kind of social moments like uh, births or deaths or marriages or betrothals. Um, how certain times uh, throughout the year were observed, what those times meant. Um, so apart from just what would be called oral literature or kind of storytelling, it also covers this broader aspect of social custom, social history um, and material culture. But I suppose it would differ from other, other kind of academic or, or um, historical kind of areas of interest in that it often focuses on the quote-unquote plain people, as it were, that it's not—it's not the great and the good. It's kind of um, it's history the, from the bottom up. Exactly, it? it's not—it's not—it's not a kind of interest in the mercantile classes or the elites per se. It's more from the um, from the ground, I suppose, from, and that—that that was the kind of the area of the ordinary people, basically, and how they lived and what I suppose what was the the nature of their uh, their cultural expressions, basically. And because it's so rich, actually, as a source, I find historians are far more interested now as well in what it can tell us about how people lived and that yeah. we would have dismissed folklore for those who thought it was simply the oral literature but actually there's so much social history oh, caught yeah. up there that can add such depth to work that is being kind of taken from national archives and the official records mm, absolutely yeah know. it's um 
I suppose if you're to look if you're to look at say some say large historical event and you're to simply to focus on um, state papers or certain yeah. documents, you'll get an, an insight certainly into uh, into the particular a- very area of interest that you have. But if you if you look at say how that material entered into the broader folk tradition or perception, you'll get another view of of what. Um, or, or how people related to certain practices or events in their own community. Mm. The famine is a good example here. So yeah, you can look at statistics on, on the famine and how many deaths or where did people go or how many lived or died. But if you're to look at um, some of the kind of customs and beliefs pertaining to, to what happened and, and from that kind of memory, mm. even if it's distilled through several generations, you'll, you'll start to see a broad and a very kind of different picture emerge that often reveals some of the more human elements. Yeah, and that's the word, I think, human, human, isn't it? Human. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sean O'Sullivan, I think we will talk about later as well, is the archivist for the Folklore Commission. He mentioned how I think that folk tradition or folklore for him showed some of the highest expressions of, of humanity and nobility mm-hmm. in, 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 in our people or whatever. Um, but I suppose to get to the to the definitions of folklore and folk tradition itself, it's not just storytelling, although storytelling kind of plays certainly plays a part, but it would also, I suppose, be material culture and, and ritual observances and communal observances and so on. Um, but largely speaking, these will have the same characteristics overall. So mm-hmm. if you were to look at, say, um, a certain folktale or a legend or even a traditional um, house type or something like that, you'll find that they actually will display the same kind of characteristics. Mm-hmm. Largely, they're anonymous. That is to say that there's no set author for a custom or, or, or a practice. No one has a, a particular, no author has a claim to this is how Halloween was celebrated mm-hmm. or this is how... Or, owns particular ballot they're, they're kind of uh, anonymous in that sense and um, they're passed on traditionally obviously for, from our forebears or from kind of peer-to-peer in certain uh, instances or groupings they're often passed on orally by or by, by customary example or, or spoken from person to person and then in their form they're often um, stable in that you'll see the same kind of customs and the same uh, maybe framework over a large area, but they're variable. They vary to reflect the environment that they're that they're in. Mm-hmm. So a custom on the east coast of Ireland, you might find another version of it on the west coast, but both of them reflect their own environments, which is something that points to the fact that folklore is very much a living thing. I was just going to say, actually, because a lot of people talk about it as a product. So something comes to us and it lives in the archive and it dies in the archive. But actually, it's on a spectrum, which is what we always say in our tours, it's a process, like folklore is ha- happening around us. We have our folklore in 2017, mm. as our children and our grandchildren will. So you are quite right, it's not something that dies and it's, you know, 1920s to 1940s, that's it, that's folklore. Mm. It, it continues. No, it, it's living, it's a living force, it's a dynamic force. And it's a force in which the kind of vital energies of a people find expression in their material culture, in their urban culture, in their rural culture, culture or agrarian culture. Um, and it finds expression yeah, in, into the, in the contemporary period as well. There's a quote here from, from, from um, Chano Sullivan where he mentions, he says, Old though folklore be in its origins, it is nevertheless a living thing. It is continually changing and developing at a slow rate by incorporating new ideas. Um, so that it, it points to the fact of it being very much a living force. And folklore, of course, does die, and customs do live and die, um, not by virtue necessarily of their being collected or coming to an archive, but often it's precisely when a custom stops relating to the environment mm-hmm. in which it's expressing itself and stops having a function in that sense. Yeah. It's basically taken out and shot. It becomes kind of if it's useless. Unnecessary, if it's unnecessary, yeah. yeah. Because folklore does serve a function. A, a purpose. You know, and, and, and we can kind of lament the loss of certain traditions, and many have kind of retrospectively or from a certain uh, view, but on the ground, as it were, when when certain storytelling practices become, or they don't reflect the modes of entertainment uh, anymore in a community, mm-hmm. then they just they just disappear. So you have something that maybe existed for hundreds upon hundreds, if not uh, longer periods, not of years, that suddenly uh, becomes effectively like an oxbow lake that then dries up. Um, so many of the storytelling practices that were part and parcel of Irish life and broader European life uh, for, for a great many centuries kind of came to an end certainly some of those epic narratives and cycles and yeah. um, so it does live and die but it's that it's that living force and it's very much something that is it has a set function it's not some leftover of a kind of maladapted age or something like that it's, it's, it's a, it has a, a very kind of specific function I suppose but largely these are expressions that are that are anonymous that are passed on uh, traditionally 
and that are kind of stable and variable in their form and that they're unofficial you don't have government sponsored mm-hmm. kind of here's the directive for 2017 instructions on on uh, skipping games yes. syllabus to be practiced in school it doesn't be yeah, it's, it's more organic that. in that sense and one point that you made that i think is really important that a lot of people perhaps don't understand about folklore is the urban rural divide because a lot of people when i speak to them about folklore and what we do here they imagine rural ireland in the 30s to 60s irish speaking storytelling and they don't appreciate that folklore exists in the urban environment as it, it would make sense that it does and i think people as well are surprised when we've discussed things like and we'll discuss this in kind of future podcasts about the urban folklore project mm. and the work that we've done to try and rebalance that um kind of dichotomy that we have here although of course we started focusing on the rural initially which we'll chat about shortly when we do the history of the collection but um urban folklore is hugely rich as well absolutely yeah yeah and, something and the urban folklore, yeah it's one of the the um i suppose it's a it's an assumption from which for which people would be forgiven assuming that um folk tradition only exists in a rural capacity mm. Um, largely, I suppose, in many instances, that the collections that were made in the earliest phase focused specifically on those areas. Mm. And it was fair enough that they focused on those areas and that they were, I suppose, often in a process of urbanisation or modernisation um, and rituals and customs and, and practices of all sorts uh, were in, in, seen to be in danger of dying out and the, the collecting efforts in many instances focused on those areas. Mm. Much to the neglect of, of urban areas, specifically in, in the city centre in Dublin, for example, there wouldn't have been dedicated folklore collections occurring there really until um, 1979, the Urban Folklore Project. Mm. Um, but you find a huge and, and enormously rich and interesting array of material that expresses itself in those environments, as you must when there's so many people kind of put together, you know, street games or um, slang or certain crafts or uh, even supernatural beliefs, all sorts. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely not, not a kind of a specifically uh, rural um, although so that it's when you get a group of people anywhere, they will have their folklore. You know, yes, they, they, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a way of um, relating to the, I would say, the immediate environment, the natural environment around you. Um, and it's something often that provides a kind of symbolic meaning for people as well, that these customs or supernatural beliefs or narratives, um, and even material culture, will often have these allegorical kind of lessons in them. Yeah. And so I suppose what you see is the the kind of artistry and wisdom of our forebears distilled over an enormously long period of time into these traditions, into these customs, that then show ways of uh, living, for want of a better word, or reactions to the environment, largely. Um, but that's both, yeah, both an urban and a rural phenomenon. And so I think we've you've kind of explained really nicely what folklore is, that is there and to kind of get rid of these misconceptions that people have that we do have rural and urban folklore and those three elements, the um, the oral element, the material and then the customary element, mm. which I think is important. If not, if people take nothing else away from our ramblings, it's that <laughs> folklore is so, so much more than just the, the oral literature aspect. Yes. And it, it is actually even just looking at those, you know, the groupings I have there, kind of mm. oral literature, material culture and, and then the social folk custom and so on, they're kind of... <clears throat> they're quite unsatisfactory in a way, even themselves, because if you pull on one, the whole structure of moves, it's Absolutely. a broad landscape. And they're so, so linked, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, the way I often would have explained it as well to students, if we're looking at this, basically we're exploring a broad landscape of custom, tradition and meaning, for want of a better word. And when you view it from the perspective of oral literature, you look at its, you know, uh, hills and valleys and so on from one angle. Yeah. And certain elements stand out in sharp relief, but then when you observe it from the per- perspective of material culture, you just look at that same landscape from, from a different angle. But you'll find, say, material culture will bleed into oral literature. The, the, the objects and items found in the narratives will reflect those found in the in the natural environment. It's all a product of the natural environment. Often um, the items that are kind of found or used by, by people as part of folk life or material culture, so-called, will express some of the more spiritual elements of folk tradition than just the physical and then social folk custom will stand halfway in between with again calendar observances that can involve maybe effigies or divination about the future or bonfires or certain foods Mm -hmm. so it all there's this kind of a broad tapestry of of 
um, tradition and culture and meaning that all kind of mesh together. So I suppose when we use these groupings to analyse those different areas, we're looking at it just this broad landscape, but from, from one angle. But nothing will ever fit neatly into the boxes that we want them to. Largely. That's life, yeah. Johnny. That is life. That is it's the case. It's better that we learn it now. <laughs> yes, true enough. True enough, yeah. And so is this a good point to um, jump into the history of folklore mm. collection, which I find fascinating is, anyway, yeah, yeah. and where it began. And then perhaps if we look at the broader picture of what was happening in Europe in the 19th century, when this whole idea of folklore collection and preserving heritage and culture, how that came about, what the driving forces were. And then we can perhaps move on to looking at the impact that had then on the Irish experience and mm. how our own methods were coloured by that, but also what we might have done differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, I know it, is, it is a really interesting area uh, of how this whole kind of, I suppose, interest in certain aspects of culture came about. I suppose it's one, yeah, you have to go back into the period of the Enlightenment period in, in kind of 17th century Europe and, and even further afield, I suppose, to consider the political, the philosophical kind of climate at the time, an intellectual climate at the time. And many of the, the individuals who appear in the 19th century um, or the late 18th century uh, with an interest in, say, the, the quote-unquote vulgar rights of the peasantry or whatever, were displaying a certain kind of um, reaction to or movement against some of the rigidity of the of post enlightenment thinking or of enlightenment thinking, I suppose that because they called it the tyranny of tradition, didn't they? The enlightenment thinking, yeah, yeah it, would, yeah, it would have been a very kind of um, rationalist, uh, anti-traditional, anti-spiritual, anti-religious, um, I guess materialistic kind of, I suppose, precursor for modernity in many ways. Yeah, very much so, driving towards modernity. Yeah, it? that 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 was the kind of that was the philosophical outlook, and a lot of the, I suppose, as one might expect, maybe it was more of the artists on. Um, who were reacting, I suppose, to, to this kind of overwhelming tendency in, in life, as well you had then the huge uh, changes that manifested all over Europe uh, with the, the onslaught and of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And, and you've that, got printing as well, which comes into yeah. it and the impact that has. Yeah. Um, so I suppose you have the movement towards urbanisation, modernisation, Industrial Revolution, a kind of a vast upheaval really occurring in, in a very short amount of time if you consider say towns and villages all over Europe from you know the medieval or, or period saying largely the, the modes of life and practices being in many ways at least similar than how they had over a long period of time and then very very suddenly these huge upheavals and changes in, in thought and in, in living conditions and so on and um, so a lot of the kind of the, the the people who reacted to this and against it were largely artists often um, and you had people like, um, say, the kind of the romanticists who were interested in nature and the sublime and in tradition and all this. But as well as that, then you had the kind of nationalists in Europe and, and the romantic nationalist movement in Germany and, um, and in England and, and I suppose further afield. And this is interesting. This is where kind of cultural nationalism, when it comes into it, and the, you don't often associate one, or you wouldn't necessarily, someone who's coming to it for the first time wouldn't associate it with folklore. No, Because it's folklore no. is all fun and fuzzy and... The warm you know, and fuzzy feelings. Warm and fuzzies, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you don't, culture or cultural nationalism and political nationalism, you just don't imagine them to be bedfellows yeah, in, you're right, with yeah. folklore initially. Yeah. You know? And yet, I suppose you could argue that in its earliest inceptions, it is the driving force. It Absolutely. was largely politically conservative. It was acting often against um, many of the, the corrosive uh, impacts of, of modernisation. And, and in Ireland and in Europe. Absolutely, yeah. See, from, from, from the 18th century and 19th century on. Um, and I suppose one of the things as well that you have is an interest not in the, in the elites or the kind, of the kind of mercantile or banking, these kind of upper echelons or whatever or of society, but an interest in um, the common man and woman the, 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 and the rural peasantry specifically, who were in a sense were viewed now as, as bearers of an ancient civilization and that by, by virtue of examining their uh, rights and customs that the, the spirit of the nation somehow, the spirit of the, of the people would be revealed in that. Yeah. And that would be revealed in a, something that was antithetical to the, to, the, to the process of urbanization largely that was occurring. So those were usually the political lens to which this kind of um, movement was geared or at least towards which some of these artists with these kind of inclinations and feelings began to to look towards items of folk tradition uh, and to examine them 
1746 you have um, relics of ancient English poetry, the collection of ballads that was published that uh, influenced uh, the Brothers Grimm mm. in, in and Germany. And, and they are big names now. Yes, let's, they, let's absolutely. Talk about the Brothers Grimm. They were kind of, I mean, you could, um, well, they, they were hugely influential and hugely famous in their day as well, not just as, as folklorists, but as um, kind of language scholars and, and legal scholars and so on and so forth. And they began to collect um, and publish items of, of folk tradition, specifically um, material from oral literature, folk tales. Mm. And a book, Kinder and Hausmärchen, published in 1812. And that's children and household tales. Yes. Which I find, as a, it's often translated as Grimm's fairy tales, but technically it's, it's, it's ch- children and household tales. Yeah, yeah. And not very child-friendly, necessarily. No, very, very <laughs> often, yeah, often um, uh, kind of, they were sanitised later on mm-hmm. in many ways. But yeah, when you read versions of um, Little, Red, Little Red Riding Hood or Cinderella and so on, they're often a lot more... Um, Grim dark, by name, darker, grim yeah. by subject. Yes, yeah, exactly. Know. Yeah, I mean, even for example, lullabies often you find tradition are often very kind of murderous and dark. As you're kind of lulling some child to sleep about, uh, I don't know, these kind of particularly kind of macabre subjects. Whatever. Um, but the brothers Grimm would have, would have collected and published these 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 stories, um, but they would have kind of amended them, uh, having having kind of published them first, basically. Can I read a quote? Yeah, I please. love a quote. You'll you'll come to know that, folks. <laughs> so in the first um, edition of Kinder und Hausmarschen. I'm going to have to apologise for my pronunciation as we go through this. And um, That was 1812. Mm-hmm. And they say, Our first aim in collecting these stories has been exactness and truth. We've added nothing of our own, have embellished no incident or feature of the story, but have given it substance just as we ourselves received it. Mm. Which, as a folklorist, I find that hugely interesting because there's often a bad reputation about the literary style of folktales, which we won't get into too much because it's not the theme of this mm. introductory podcast. But actually the Grimm's were hugely scientific in a way, which Douglas Hyde, who will come to later, praised highly as a style. So they weren't just out um, speaking to Joe and Josephine blogs and then writing up their stories for a, a literary audience, which will come to next as an impact that we, we see in Ireland particularly but they were actually very methodical and mm. systematic about their methods and in that first edition their notes on each story they're remarkable because they give such detailed overviews of where they found them and if another version existed they'll actually put that in the notes as well and they'll speak about where themes arise and what that means in the context of their community and also if they have kind of international correlations so they'll speak about and kind of themes in scott or stories in scotland that had the same themes mm. they were hugely knowledgeable yeah they weren't just out having a nice time collecting stories it, yeah it's, it's funny because actually just that quote you read would be quite a counterintuitive for me when i would think of lots of the 19th century collections of mm. folk tradition that they were prone to uh, embellishment and prone to change them and prone to artistry mm. really because that's what they were, they were writers and poets and artists yeah. and so on. But I suppose they were quite exact. And one of the things you mentioned as well, um, the collecting of different versions is important. And it's important that it's kind of viewed as, this was a very, it was a, a kind of a comparative discipline in that there was a there was a broader European culture or heritage that was being explored and examined. And the idea was that if you were to collect kind of certain versions of narratives that you you would begin to find or be able to trace its genesis or the origin of a custom or a tale. And by doing that, you could kind of get to the oldest roots of Indo-European civilization, largely. You could do that by looking at um, certain linguistic terms and archaic terms that were found in the speech, in the ordinary speech of, of, of people and so on, um, to see that here's their common root between certain words. Um, you could look at, at certain narratives and, and, and so on and so forth. And that by collecting large amounts of these narratives and different versions of them, you'd be able to kind of paint a picture of... I suppose the spread and the historic and geographic spread of, of these of these narratives. That was then, I suppose, a theory and approach to folk tradition that was kind of um, lambasted and attacked later on for not really kind of pointing to or considering the the deeper functionality of it or an individual's repertoire in their community and the kind of how that relates to the broader scheme of things. Really, hindsight though is the only absolute revision. It's very easy yes. for us to come oh, after totally, isn't totally, it? totally, totally. We um, often discuss this. We, yeah. we kind of treat people very harshly, it, yes. um, without realizing the context of the time. Totally. I, mem- I remember with um, one of the other characters, the nineteenth-century characters, who when I first 
began to get interested in folklore and folk tradition was Thomas Croft and Croker. And I just, I, I just found it, I just was so kind of... Um, not a fan, Johnny. No, I was not a fan of poor <laughs> Thomas Crop and Croker. And I've come to, to really warm to him over the years. Um, but he, he would have been one of, the, one of the, the figures in Ireland who would have been particularly um, influential in the documenting of not just folk tales and literature and legends and so on, but also customs, examples of, of uh, wakes and so on and so forth that he has his recollections of. But there are instances where he kind of... Um, overdoes it and you see the kind of Paddy the Stage Irish fan uh, take centre stage basically and that was something I suppose for which the likes of Crofton Croker and Zilk received flack later on. Um, because they were writing for a specific literate yes, yeah. middle upper class audience mm. weren't they and they were they were booksellers yeah, weren't they, were. they? Yeah, so yeah. they had and to write nice stories that's it, that yeah. people would enjoy reading. And they adapted them they, they, they kind of they took them uh, and they would embellish them or add them as they saw fit and and kind of adapt them and change them into something else, um, but that was that was his perspective of where, where they were coming from. And the Brothers Grimm trans or Crofton Croker's books were translated into into German, so there was a kind of a cross pollination or that broad kind of wider European interest in European heritage and inheritance as well. That was um, shown as well by the, the lots of the kind of scholars who were very aware of what was going on in, in mm-hmm. each other's countries. We were talking earlier on about, about nationalism and so on as well. And this was very much a part of um, where this material was kind of coming from as well. You had people like Lady Wilde or Speranza, her pen name, Oscar Wilde's mother. Absolutely. And she published poetry and texts and so on and so forth, um, but utilised them often in that kind of to nationalistic ends to further the Irish nationalist movement. Mm-hmm. So you have, in that sense, the elites of a kind of vanguard political movement utilising items of the kind of more communal grassroots folk tradition to show what the nation is or could be or what the idea of the nation should be and and kind of using that material in another very ideological way basically as has been the case as you said idea is the word there because it wasn't necessarily an accurate representation of what the country was you know it was very it was idealized and again what struck me reading about the likes of um, Thomas Croft and Croker and Lady Wilde they wouldn't have been Irish speakers, so a lot of the material that they would have gotten, they would have received through translators, wouldn't they? So it wouldn't have been first-hand, um, you and I sitting, speaking, um, and them understanding the language it was being performed in or given in, mm. which is hugely interesting to what we'll come to later about accurate recording of yeah. traditions, customs and yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it, it is with the, the idea of the, of the nation as a thing, or there's a kind of... There is an ideological basis to it. There is a symbolic kind of aspect to it. There's a political or nationalist aspect to it. Um, there's also, I suppose, there is a kind of a nostalgic. There's there's a longing for what's that word? You know, the pain of home. I think is what the mm. Greek means. That there's that idea to kind of return to an origin or or uh, a golden past of some sort or another. Um, that is being largely kind of I suppose erased or undone by the onslaught of uh, the modern experience and urbanization and so on. Um, oh, you had a quote, William Toms, who coined the term folklore in 1846. Oh, yeah. he, he called it a fine Anglo-Saxon compound. You had a quote, he had a quote. He did. I'll, I'll read this out. Um, in 1846, the railroad mania was at its height and the iron horse was transplanting underfoot all our ancient landmarks and putting to flight all the relics of our early popular mythology. And this is William Toms writing later, but as you quite rightly said, he coined the, the word folklore in 1846. And that's what he was fighting against, I yeah, suppose, reacted. as the Irish did later. Yeah. So, if anything, I mean, you have, I suppose, um, a movement against the industrial, or the the industrialization of many communities, the urbanization. In Ireland, you have, I suppose, a movement to to increase cultural autonomy, and the nationalist movement in that regard, and to go to the old symbols and narratives and epic cycles and so on, and to kind of recast them. In as part of an ideological, uh, nationalist, um, largely politically conservative kind of, uh, but revolutionary as well in its way, uh, movement largely, and and that's what kind of underpins the some of the groundwork across Europe, and then in, in obviously into Ireland more broadly, and you see that change then, that comes along with say, um, 
likes of Douglas Hyde, who's a hugely influential figure as well, who we can talk about. And then his student of his, James Largi, uh, Seamus Oslarga, who was enormously influential and visionary figure as far as the collecting of folklore, not just in Ireland, but, but further afield. One of our founding fathers, who Absolutely, will, yeah, will come yeah. back to like, time and time again. Um, I mean, even if there's a that quote of his in the Handbook of Irish Folklore, um, if I can find it now, where he says, like Tom's, but this is published in 1942, so almost 100 years later, mm. The entire fabric of Irish rural civilization, so well portrayed in the present volume, is today, as in the past, beset by many enemies. Here, as elsewhere, the shoddy imported culture of the towns pushes back the frontiers of the indigenous homespun culture of the countryside, and the ancient courtesies and traditional ways of thought and behaviour tend to disappear before the destroying breath of the spirit of the age, as he says at the end. So it's 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 very similar um, in its. History emotional just kind happens of, in cycles, doesn't it? Because it there's, does. seeing exactly the same thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're reacting to, 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 um, to many of the same processes. And the sense of erasure and the sense of, I suppose, a loss of identity, a lack of identity, uh, and it's being um, reduced or just ca- cast off and, 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 um, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's a sense of, I suppose, emergency and crisis about much of what's occurring as well, that this needs to be saved, this material has to be saved. From, from the likes of Crofton Croker and, and Patrick Kennedy, who's another individual who published um, um, items of, of uh, legendary and, and, and folktales and so on and so forth. Um, and, and John Millington Singh is another one who has, who has some fantastic accounts of, of, of early life and material culture and so on. Um, you have Douglas Hyde then, who was a hugely influential figure, who established in 1893 Cunan de Gaiga. Um, and was Ireland's first president as well, and had as a student of his, uh, James Hamilton de Largy, Seamus And that's Largy. the link, isn't it? That's the link, yeah. yeah. And this is the, in around the 1900, where, where these scholars who are studying kind of Celtic studies, the Irish language and folk tradition and narrative and so on and so forth, that they have become uh, sick. De Largy said he was sick of the rubbish that passes for folklore. And there was a movement against, say, the over-indulgence in this kind of stage Irish the literary um, style, the li- yeah. inaccurate representation. So they wanted to move into a much more kind of scientific area, but if anything, that was quite a mechanical shift as opposed to a spiritual one. They're still mm-hmm. reacting against the same things. Yeah. They still have the same ideological basis or bent or trajectory to much of what they're trying to achieve, but the way that they go about doing it shifts quite quite radically. Quite and dramatic. that's where the kind of government institutions in collecting folklore, that's where they kind of come into play in, in the... In the uh, not 19th century, so the, the early 20th century, early 1900s. And I think that's a good point in that all of these people that we've been looking at before, so say the likes of um, the Grimm brothers, Patrick Kennedy, William Wilde, um, Jeremiah Curtin, who we didn't mention, but mm. people sh- who are familiar with folklore will know um, Jeremiah Curtin, William Laramie, Lady Wilde, all, all of these were individuals working in the field. There was no actually concerted effort or organisation at the time, mm. which is the big shift for Ireland, isn't it, in the 20th century when Douglas Hyde and the likes of Seamus O'Dellarga and mm. um, Finan McCollum and Shoke, when they start thinking about we need um, a communal effort now, we need a national, a national state-funded um, organisation. Mm. Yeah, that was that was the, the big change and Seamus O'Dellarga, I guess, is, is a hugely visionary uh, individual who, who went about achieving enormous amounts of, of, um, of progress actually in that regard. Um, I suppose the first maybe groups that one would point to in that sense would be the Folklore of Ireland Society and Cumann the Bela de Serin, which we're happy to say is still alive and kicking. We just recently um, uh, elected our new president. I think it's been four presidents since 1926 when it was established. Douglas Hyde is one. Um, uh, on Shawak, uh, Andrew Sumwinachon, Andrew Brennan, and now uh, Eilish Nihaina. Just good, pe- good pedigree. Absolutely. Yes, indeed. Um, but that the, the, the Folklore of Ireland Society was established in 1926 by the likes of um, Seamus of Douglas Hyde, um, of Shilman McCullum, um, and these sorts of figures who were hugely interested in, in doing something about basically what, what they saw as the disappearance of the old cultural strands and old order. Um, the Folklore of Ireland Society was a voluntary body and it began collecting uh, and organising in a, in a methodological way, in a scientific way. Scientific insofar as that it was meant to be kind of rigorously organised and, and not prone to embellishment or any of this sort of stuff. Um, and that, that was the aim to kind of start to document this material in quite an organised fashion. 
um, so that it could be, say, for posterity and reproduced in the printed word and, and published and all sorts of stuff as well. And used. And, and used, you know, but yeah, held in an archive stars, then yeah. as well, that it would be kind of held centrally. That again, like you'd see with the Brothers Grimm, there's the idea if you collect all these versions, you'll get an idea of the overall picture of a custom or a wider Indo-European heritage. Similarly, all these versions and variants of narratives were to be collected, but also their contextual details had to be collected. Um, you shouldn't change the, the archaic turns of phrase or correct the grammar of an individual who was using them either. So there's that, like I said, a mechanical shift from the 19th century, not a spiritual one, in which they still have the same, or a great many of the same, uh, ideological kind of perspectives, but there's a mechanical shift in how it's, how it's meant to be prepared. I have a quote here, for, or a, a piece of audio from the archive, we should play maybe from Delargy well, himself. Do and he's talking about um, the sense of urgency, basically, that he felt at the time to... Um, and we'll try to incorporate clips material from, from the archive, archive as yeah. much as we yeah, can. Yeah, yeah, whether it's so much. It is, and yeah. it's so rich, so whether it's audio or from the manuscripts, we hope you enjoy it. So this is um, uh, Delargy um, talking about the, basically the need to, to collect. I realised that the old house was on fire, you know. It was about time some of the furniture was taken out before the whole thing went up. In other words, the civilization which had lasted here, Gaelic civilization, which had lasted here for so many centuries, that now it was disintegrating. So that I suppose the desire to save, the urge to save, a burning urge to save, and I have done something in that regard, and I feel glad. But I feel sorry too, because I realise how little I have done, and how little we in the Irish folklore have done, compared to what there was to be done. So that was the Largy talking us about the, the the sense of urgency that you find that comes across in uh, the publications, the introductions to to the likes of the Handbook of Irish Folklore, which you can talk about. This sense of, of urgency um, to, to save, basically, the, the kind of vestiges of, of the old ways, largely. And as he says, in, in the, as Delargy says in the introduction to Sean Sulawan's Handbook of Irish Folklore, that he wants to see these customs uh, and our forewares, in a sense, known and honoured. Mm. You know, that they shouldn't just be kind of disappear into the, um, the kind of wastes of time, basically. And he saw that as a broader European, he saw Western kind of European civilization and the mind of, of, of kind of European man largely present in these older customs, that it was the broader, it looked further afield and wasn't entirely insular. It was a wider European kind of movement. The strength of the Irish experience comes into it, isn't it? Because, and again, we'll touch on the Scandinavian influence that we had in the mentors that the likes of Seamus de Larga had from Sweden and Norway. But if you're looking at um, Kuno Meyer, he speaks about when he calls Ireland's early literature the earliest voice from the dawn of West European civilization, and the Scandinavian scholars recognized the treasure that we had here before we did, yeah. because we were largely kind of left untouched by say kind of the Roman onslaught that you know England and Britain mm. would have been, and so along our western coasts and into the Midlands, we did have those remnants that had long passed out of memory elsewhere and they recognised that in a way that the Irish didn't mm. until um, I suppose Hyde and Delargy mm. and those who kind of came to make a concerted effort and I thought it's it's now or never. Mm. Yes but you had um, a huge interest of of, uh, of international scholars of Scandinavians and, and Swedish scholars in particular are hugely important. We mentioned I suppose the mechanical shift from the very artistic and, and kind of embellished inclinations in the 19th century to, to the publication of folk tradition that then moved into this other aspect of kind of much more mechanical and uh, methodological um, kind of collection of tradition that would then go in an archive and for public use and consultation as well so there's this kind of other element to it but before all that material could be arranged and, and kind of organized the, the scholars in Ireland needed to establish uh, the framework under which this, through which this was to be done and the Swedish scholars were, were hugely, um, or, well, I suppose we are hugely indebted to the early Swedish scholars in a sense for providing us with that framework, which was then adapted to suit the Irish experience and Irish conditions largely. And many of um, our staff were trained in Sweden yes, and in, in Norway and yeah, 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 to learn yeah. the methods. Sean O'Sullivan in 1935 um, travelled to Sweden and there was taught the systems of classification uh, that we still use now in, in, in the National Folklore Collection here to organise the material that we have 
and then also to organize all future material largely that comes in. Um, and his efforts were published in a fantastic book, The Hammock of Irish Folklore. We call it the, the Lurnifer, the second Lurnifer, <laughs> the, the second holy book, because we use it on a daily basis, don't it's we? It's incredible. It's, it's an encyclopedia of, of, um, of, of folk customs. Well, again, actually, as, as a quote, um, it's, again, Delargy in his preface to the book, he says, this book is an encyclopedia of Irish and indeed of West European tradition as well. It is an inventory of the long neglected and in great part unknown archive to which every age and generation of our people has contributed over the limitless wastes of time, a treasure house of fact and fancy of ritual and observance, of custom and belief. There's that kind of broader um, European kind of context to it, largely. Mm. But the Swedish scholars, this book is dedicated to the Swedish uh, uh, scholars and people, in fact, from Sean O'Sullivan in his, in his dedication, who, I suppose, gave us basically the systems of classification that we use. And in going back to the start of saying, well, what is folklore and why would you need these systems of classification? Because it covers all aspects of human life. It covers um, settlement and dwelling, communications and trade, historical tradition, religious tradition, um, clothing, um, recipes, foods, cures, the supernatural. There's, there's a, a dizzying array of material. I love what Sean O'Sullivan says, the lore of man and all his numerous activities. But I should probably correct that and say the lore of all people well, and not? all their activities. <laughs> what they say, what they do and what they make. That's, that's it. That is it. And even the book itself... Um, it's, it's, it's 800 pages largely of questions, but it's fantastically detailed and it's instructions to folklore collectors. So Delargy, as you heard there in a sample, saying that uh, having a burning urge to save begins to establish these groups, the first of whom is the Folklore of Ireland Society. It was then very quickly realised that a volunteer group like the Folklore of Ireland Society couldn't quite manage the task at hand of, of, of kind of saving the entire field of Irish folklore largely. And to that end, in 1930, the Irish Folklore Institute was established which was recognised by the state. But in 1935, the huge, the big kind of, I suppose, uh, change came about when Delargy convinced Eamon de Valera at the time to, you know, the Taoiseach, the, the, the Prime Minister at the time, to, um, to put aside £100 to collect folklore in each county across Ireland, to which de Valera agreed. And then the Irish Folklore Commission was set up. And with the setting up of the Irish Folklore Commission, you had, I suppose, a visionary director in Delargy, mm. but you also had his very insightful and, and, and kind of keen ability to um, convert basically a great many volunteers, teachers all over the country to the aim of collecting folklore and then also to hire collectors full-time and part-time to work in their own communities mm -hmm. in Irish, in English, collecting where they'd be working among people who trust them. Absolutely, because you don't want the blow-ins coming no, in to no, be suspicious. No, you do not. You do not want the blow-ins coming in to kind of ask strange questions exactly. about strange topics. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, do you make putting around here? Where is your still? At? You know, those sorts of things are bring down the wrath of the local constabulary or priest. Or you don't want these sorts of things at all. So you want somebody who can be trusted and so on. So Antolaghi had a very keen ability uh, to kind of to bring into his ranks some enormously gifted individuals who collected tens of thousands worth of pages of primary source material, which we now have in the manuscripts. Not to mention photographs, uh, their own contributions, academic contributions, and so on, uh, video recordings. Um, but you had people, these folklore collectors, and we should do episodes on them. I think so, because uh, they're hugely they're, fascinating oh, in their own right, they're aren't incredible, they? incredible, absolutely incredible. Travelling the country, talking to, to men and women in their houses um, about all manner of aspects of, of life, and custom and culture and so on. But that work was largely done and brought about by, by this book, The Handbook of Irish Folklore, that collectors would, would follow and literally quote verbatim the questions mm -hmm. from it. I'll go through some of the questions and instructions maybe briefly, but before I do that... Shall we listen to... This is, this is, this is um, Delargy describing how he met De Valera and how he convinced him um, to establish the Irish Folklore Commission. The quality isn't as good as the last recording, but sure, we should be able to make it out. But I remember very well, through Senator Joseph Connolly, who came from the same <coughs> part of Ireland as I did, and the Glenville Antrim, and... Um, who arranged the matter? I had an interview with Mr. De Valera many years ago, to be, to be, to be exact, uh, 1934. And uh, it was the night of the budget, and, and the officials were coming into him, into his room, and he was pushing them aside, and the, he, he talked about something. He talked about his youth, and when he was a boy, that he had heard folk tales told in English, of course in County Limerick and he went on talking and then I couldn't it was a tense moment for me and I said excuse me sir I don't speak the language of diplomacy I have just one thing to say to you 
material is there, it's dying, and you know it. You're interested in the Irish language, as I am. And I think it's about time something was done to put on paper or to record in some way the old tradition of a silent people who, as I said a moment ago, had so much to say. So please, take that pen in your hand and write, let it be done, and I'll do it, get other people to help me. And that's how the Folklore Commission started. He had some gumption, didn't he? Oh, he did. I'll use the word gumption. Just to go in and it yeah. needs to be done, it needs to be done now. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. My it's way or the highway. Yeah, yeah, largely, yeah. And um, I suppose it was, it was with that meeting that the Irish Folklore Commission was established. I've read the correspondence inside between Delargy and Ryder Christiansen, their Norwegian uh, folklorist, um, where he comes out of that meeting or the day after, and he writes him a letter saying that you know we've got it, we've done it, it's established. You know, so it's fantastic to kind of the no um, bureaucracy is there. There's no um, I'll reply to you in three to four yeah, days well, it and seem two to, months yeah, later, yes, yeah. and we'll discuss money. And it's well, as he said himself, you do. He doesn't speak the language of diplomacy. It's <laughs> there, but um, but with, in 1935, when when the folklore commission was established. That same year, the spring of that year, Sean O'Sullivan travelled to Sweden and he compiled this, this book, The Handbook of Irish Folklore, or at least he began the process of, of familiarising himself with the, 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 the methods of organising uh, folklore and folk tradition, and The Handbook of Irish Folklore uh, is a result. And this would have been given, there were a thousand copies printed in 1942, it was quite a rare book, and then there was another, I think, reprint in 1963 and then in 1970, but it's, it's kind of hard to get copies overall. But there are instructions to folklore collectors a few, there's 14 of them here, but we can go through a brief um, example of some of them. So Sean O'Sullivan indicates, or he suggests that, that, he says, record the information in the exact words of the speaker if possible. Make no corrections or changes. And further on he says, if the informant spoke in Irish, record the information in that language. Write it down in English if it was given in English. And then he says that the collector should state clearly, either on a slip affixed at the head of each item or else as a note at the end, the name, age and full address of the person from whom he recorded the information. It is most important that the source of each piece of information be given correctly. So you see again that mechanical shift between the Crofton Krogers and Speranzas of this world into this other kind of more uh, methodological, kind of scientific, for want of a better word, approach to uh, the material. But this, this kind of, I would feel that the spiritual kind of orientation or directly behind it is largely the same. It's yeah. that kind of, it's not scientific and dry and objective, it's, it's emotional and it's, it's, um, but it's important to have both, isn't it? Because it means that the collection for us now is so much more valuable because we can trust it to a large degree. We have all this information about, so each one, as Sean was saying, each piece of material when visitors come to us and they view a manuscript will have the name of the collector, mm. where they're from, the county they're collecting in, the name of their informant, as we would have called the storyteller or the person giving the piece of social history, their garmbehe or their profession at the time, the date, mm -hmm. their age, and then interestingly where they live and also where they heard the story from so that you can start mm. to trace pieces of information or stories between parishes. Yeah. And this hadn't been done before. No. So actually what they're doing in the Scandinavian model is hugely pioneering for the Irish um, experience. But for us now as folklorists and scholars looking back, it just means that it's tested information and it's trustworthy and reliable. Yeah. It can be cleanly analysed then. Yeah. And there was even, they'd ask, well, where, did you, where do you live and where did you grow up if it was mm. somewhere else? And where did you hear it and where did they live and where did they grow up? Mm. So you can begin to plot um, the trajectory or arc of a certain custom or, or look at its contextual details. Because if you, if you now have a manuscript with, with uh, hundreds of stories in it, but no indication of who told them where they came from, it, they, a huge part of that information just becomes lost to you and you can only look at the the linguistic kind of vehicle itself, the, 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 the words on the paper now, largely. Um, and that's interesting when you say linguistic, because again, that kind of touches on, it was Douglas Hyde had a quote where he's kind of really looking down on the, the style that had gone before when it's captured without context and without kind of due respect to the language that it was given in. So for example, we, we see it here in the manuscripts as well, that the collectors were told, as you read there, collect it as you hear it, in the language you hear it. Mm. So for us reading kind of pieces of information or um, tales in the manuscripts, 
it, it doesn't read like an enjoyable book in, in the sense that Cro- Thomas Croft and Croker would have had it or Lady Wilde. It's very stilted mm. sometimes and kind of unnatural in a way to read it when we're so used to novels and things that style. But actually it's more authentic because they are recording it as they heard it from that person. So it's the most accurate representation of the performance or the kind of mm. the process of giving that information that we can possibly have, mm. which again is so important. Totally, yeah, yeah. It's one of the kind of um it can be very strange sometimes reading some sort of some stories from the manuscripts and like you said, they come across and it they can seem quite very strange or hard to work out so the yeah. jumps or where where they're going, but they're Often they've been they've been transcribed directly by uh, by the collector. Douglas Hyde in the introduction to, to one of his books as well. I forget which now. He says that if you want to collect stories from someone, never to kind of start straight away asking. Oh, so clear. I tell you the story and I could stop there and kind of yeah. start. Let stop, me get start, that start. down. Yeah, but to let them just run through in one sweep, and then ask them again. Oh, you know, I'd like to get that on paper. Or could, do you mind saying that again? And then as they go through it again, to maybe pull them up a little bit so you can. But they literally just be writing it down. Um, or making early recordings onto wax cylinder and the edaphone recorder, which is this kind of hugely clunky device that was kind of powered by a spring, a handle that you turn and you put a wax cylinder, like a hollow candle onto it. And a person could speak for about five minutes onto this recording. And then they'd have to stop, change the cylinder, carry on. You might be there for a couple of hours with someone. And then the collector would cycle off to their house. And they in would, the rain. In the rain, no right. doubt. It has to be raining, of course, raining <laughs> Absolutely sideways. Absolutely, when you're collecting folklore. And, and then they'd have to transcribe all of this material. Ha- and, and if you ever listen to the quality of the, of the wax cylinders, which we should play over the course of future yeah, episodes, exactly. they're absolutely awful, I find. They're just this kind of screechy, scratchy mm. um, noise from, the, from the, the material itself. And then a very faint kind of signal in the background. Which is also one of the reasons that collectors often were employed in their own areas. If you're working in the English language or or, or the Irish language, that you'd know the dialectical kind of um, content of that language, and that you could navigate it uh, with ease. Because if I was suddenly to be uh, planked in Donegal or in Tyrone or something like that mm-hmm. or whatever, working in English or Irish, it, it could get difficult Absolutely. quite quickly. You know. And they um, speak about that a lot because we're currently in the process of digitizing our collection of scrapbooks here in the National Folklore Collection and a lot of the material, it always surprises me how much folklore was discussed in those early years in national papers, Mm. you know, that they would give pages and pages to this, again, kind of tying in with that idea of cultural nationalism that you were talking about. But, and, and they would really, they would pick up on such items as that as verbatim recording and how important it was. And you see instances of people writing in perhaps with letters about the latest review of the Belagist Journal, which is the journal of the Folklore of Ireland Society, saying, and they're largely positive throughout, but then you will see, I saw one where he was giving out this gentleman that a piece of information was collected and it obviously wasn't verbatim because now, again, this is from Donegal, but we're, we're, we're largely very friendly up there. We very rarely complain, but he, he did write in to say that this piece of information that was obviously collected in Donegal and he gave the sentence which to an Irish speaker in Donegal you would recognise wasn't natural Mm. as how we would say it and so he was kind of bringing them to task that if you're going to record it you should record it verbatim as it's spoken in order to kind of get the full benefit of the dialect Mm. which again was one of the functions to kind of get all the dialects of kind of the Irish language but it's so hugely interesting to me that they were so focused and being so methodical and so accurate and so correct mm. at that time because they saw the the huge importance of what they were doing. The importance of it was recognised and then and likewise it's reflected in the fact of its coverage coverage extensively uh, by the national newspapers at the time. Mm. When you go to our scrapbooks here yeah. from 1927 when the Folklore of Ireland Society is established, you have all these newspaper cuttings from all the national papers with mm. huge spreads on this what is seen as a momentous event that has occurred and Dr Christiansen's um, you know, stirring lecture to the Folklore Royal Society and on its importance. Its Absolutely. importance is recognised and understood as being inherent. It's true. Well, we've brought us up to 1935 and that, yes, um, yeah. that the beginning of that um, kind of flurry of activity in Ireland. And so the Folklore, or the Irish Folklore Commission is founded in 1935. There were never more than 10 full-time collectors. They were all men at the time when they started. But in time, we would have male and female part-time collectors. And so the collectors were sent out into kind of across the country and they, were in, they covered all of Ireland. Mm. 
So should we, is that a matter for another day or Well, we should go into it maybe briefly now, I suppose, but it certainly is something that we could cover. I mean, any of these things we could zoom in and talk about. Which we might do as we we go along. Four hour episodes, (laughs) podcasts are kind of ranting away. But as people, if anyone finds things that we mentioned that we don't talk about enough, um, we're happy to take recommendations actually, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because email us. Call now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The lines are open. (laughs) No, absolutely. And people will have their own areas of interest that maybe they'd like to see explored or questions as well about um, certain customs. I mean, I know that in this particular episode as well, we're not really talking about largely the, the, the material itself. It's more the cultural context around which it was looked at. But yeah, in, which I in think future, is necessary just to give you a flavour of where we're coming from. Absolutely. So yeah. that we can focus on substantive the, the, topics then. But the collectors had to, like you were saying, they had to travel all over the country. Now, similarly, there are areas of the country that were largely neglected. For example, the city centre, as yeah. we mentioned, for, for a great many years. Um, and that's some of the, the bias that the collecting agency needs to be seen sometimes. Why is it that a certain tradition um, seems to not exist in the place? Is it because it wasn't practiced or is it because it wasn't seen as worthwhile in collecting in that area? Mm-hmm. But collectors would travel the country and they would, I suppose, develop close working relationships and friendships indeed with, with many of the informants from whom they, they, um, they, they gathered material. And there were lots of then of publications that were kind of carried out and, and that came about from through the Folklore Commission and its work that would often focus on the repertoire of one individual and their narratives. And, and so Larry O'Neill or Sean O'Connell's book is an example of that, that Delargy uh, went and collected from him in Kildreelig in Kerry um, and he published Sean O'Connell's repertoire. So you'd have other versions of that, similarly like um, um, Eamon the Bork is another figure or certainly Peg Sayers would be someone who from, from whom an enormous amount of material was People collected. People are cringing all over the country now and yeah, beyond. They, they like, oh, be, they've, they've they, touched on Peg. Poor Peg oh, has, no, been, has, been, has, been, um, has been ruined for a great many people, I think. It might have been a poor choice for us kind of school Unfairly book. so, actually. She is, she is the mo- one of the most incredible um, storytellers and kind of, she, she had hundreds and hundreds of, 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 um, uh, of varying kind of tale types of proverbs. Anna Nicolun and Donegal is another uh, collections were made from her. Um, I think I remember reading about Sean O'Hug who was collecting from her in, in the Cruche uh, in Donegal and um, in the Blue Stacks and he he had spent a number of days collecting these folktales from her until he felt that they were kind of exhausted and then he went into her one day and there were some children in the kitchen and she was telling them proverbs and he thought oh I didn't, ask to, I didn't think to ask her proverbs so he sat down and started asking her about proverbs and she just gave forth hundreds of them had hundreds of these he you? called her the, the is it the the never ending well oh, or, never, yeah, there's, so yeah. or the never emptying well that each day he'd go back she'd have more she'd, yeah, pull up yeah, yeah pull up again yeah. Um, and this was reflecting the enormous amounts of material that was then compiled and sent in by these then diligently compiled by these tireless folklore collectors who weren't working 9 to 5 jobs they were work, they were always on call if there was a wake then you're going to go and maybe you know gather information about or see what the practices are or if somebody's up in the morning or if they're uh, back at night time or a story, you're just on all the time. Yeah, you're working to someone else's schedule constantly, exactly, exactly. you know, especially yeah. at busy times of the year, harvest time, or depending on what's happening in the traditional kind of calendar in these people's lives, you're working to their clock. That was it. And yeah. kind of the storytelling or and the kind of transmission of information kind of only happened after the working day. So, so they would be working until maybe three, four o'clock in the morning mm. and then having to go and do their next day's work of transcription, getting up at nine o'clock again. Yeah, or cycling so around. Not, yeah, I mean, I remember reading Sean McMahon, like a collector, a part-time collector, who's obviously an interesting man himself, collecting uh, in County Clare and he's writing, uh, he's talking about, he's apologising for how, how untidy his handwriting is uh, because he's writing in kind of in the dark. He's no oil for his lamp, no candles because the emergency so-called, the Second World War is on. So he's just at home writing kind of by moonlight in his little house, just transcribing enormous amounts of material uh, that, he's, that he's collected on his travels and then up again the next day, cycling here, cycling there, maybe no one's home, no telephones, and houses largely with no electricity. Um, so this is the, the kind of the nature of the work. It's and we complain about silly things. Oh, stop. Well, as, yeah, as we must. I have, I'll play a brief recording from 1960 uh, by Leo Corduff, who was the sound archivist here for a great number of years. And he's... It, just as an example of the, the interviewing or kind of collecting process, and this is him, it's quite funny, he's talking to two blacksmiths, um, I think they're from County Mayo, who are they? Um, two blacksmiths, Tom Naughton and James, James Burke from County Mayo, this is a recording from 1966, and the blacksmith as a craftsman was regarded as quite kind of 
ominous or powerful. They were the only craftsmen who could make their own tools. So there was a certain kind of uh, reverence or something displayed for them, basically. And this is just the blacksmith and how they can curse you, basically. Well, we used to hear one time this, that blacksmiths had great powers. Right. That the power of cursing and I, know, I never heard of any power of, power of blessing. No, no, but, uh, no blessing. No blessing, no blessing but they could do a bit of hair about right with the the kid. They can. Well, can if they turn down well on you and yes. redden an iron and yes. they can do you a lot of hair. Well, do you know how see. how was that done? I know how it was done. Do you, Tom? <laughs> yes, I know how it was done. Well, no, if you wanted to curse me, you might before the night is out. <laughs> <laughs> how would you go about it? I bet I could do it. <laughs> I could turn the anvil. Yeah. Turn it the other way about. Upside yes. down. Yes. And redden an iron, a certain iron. Yeah. Is there a special iron? A certain yeah. iron yeah. and... Uh, what what iron would that be? Uh, it's the culture of a plough. Yes. That's what I... You have to redden that. And, and you have to and keep hammering and your men will, <coughs> men will get warm, I'm telling you. Yes. They say, yes, they say it's right, you know. Do you, are there any words or prayers or anything? Well, there might be curses for all I know. <laughs> but you never heard. He never did it. That's the lads, they carry on. <clears throat> but that was, I suppose, again, you see as well, we're talking about material culture and the different groupings, that often material culture or aspects of it will link into more supernatural or magical mm-hmm. or spiritual elements. So you have using the anvil, using a piece of a plough to curse someone. Absolutely. So you've got the oral, up. the material, the custom. Exactly, all, all mashed up together. And that's something we'll look at in the next episode as well for, um, to, to look at material on, on May Day and customs regarding May Day. And specifically, if your butter happened to have been supernaturally stolen by a shape-changing witch. That's as always my occurred. concern on May Day. Well, that, that the way to get it back was to heat, to heat the... the this piece of the plough in the fire and that the heat would be transferred to the perpetrator basically so we have some of these kind of ideas um, but how material culture and social folk custom often well all these elements they blend together basically but the collectors i suppose that were gathering this material on behalf of the commission were doing it in this very kind of organized and methodological way that allows us to analyze it cleanly later on mm-hmm. and through from 1935 through uh, up to 1971 there was an enormous amount of material collected and from 1971 on that's when it changed hands and it became part of the University College it Dublin here, here and which is now where we are now that in the National Folklore Collection um, largely kind of curating and uh, still disseminating the material and still collecting as well it's important to say digitizing it putting it online and then as well being kind of open to the to the public uh, to a range of scholars and researchers who come in as well as then our academic department and teaching students and folklorists of the future largely um, so there's a, there's a long kind of strand or thread even from through from 19th century kind of European, I suppose, nationalist thinking, romantic nationalism and anti-industrialization, anti-urbanization and so on, um, through in the artistry of the 19th century and the more methodological approach that appears in the 20th century, but largely has the same kind of content as its focus, basically, and that is the, the traditional wisdom and, and, and heritage and lore of uh, the native people, basically, and that that that. It's being the golden chain. I I can't remember who called it that. Whether it was Delargy or yeah, Ruben Hyde, but yeah. it's a lovely it uh, image. The golden chain mm. that continues to us today, mm. and hopefully on into the future, isn't it? Yes, this is Which it. Which I suppose is a nice place to draw us to a close. Yes. Um, if anyone's still listening, <laughs> um, I, I certainly enjoyed. Oh, I likewise. always learn something new chatting to you, Johnny, and I hope others have as well, and that you'll join us for the next episode which, as Johnny said, will be on May Day traditions and customs. And in the meantime, we should say, as we said at the beginning, we'd love to hear from people. And if Absolutely. you had recommendations, it's very easy for us to say, oh, we'll, we'll look at this, we'll look at that, because we find so much interesting here in the archive. But if anyone did have weird and wonderful ideas, we'd love to hear them. Absolutely. So feel free to email us. We're at bellagis at ucd.ie. We're also at Bellagis UCD on Twitter. We're the National Folklore Collection on Facebook. We're available over the phone. Again, as I said, by post. Fax. By fax, if Potter you have Lou. to. All things considered. Pigeon. Yeah, Send yeah, pigeons. pigeon. Um, uh, and then on, on duchas.ie, D-U-C-H-A-S.ie, you can view the, the what's the, the, so far has been digitised from the National Folklore Collection. And you'll find on there the school's manuscript collection carried out in 1937 to 38, which is definitely one, if not 
several episodes on its own. Yeah, hugely um, fascinating. So dubis.ie, yeah. it's certainly one if you haven't looked at it to, to look it out. Mm. Um, we will leave with something from the archive. This is a little bit of a recording that I like. I found just in the context of doing some research for, for Easter. And this is uh, the very renowned musician, uh, Master Piper, Ilan Piper, Seamus Ennis, who was also, he worked for the Folklore Commission uh, collecting songs and so we have all his material here. And this is him recording um, an air, which was a favourite of his, uh, called Easter Snow, which is named after, there's a ballad of the same name. Um, and this is him, in fact, Seamus Ennis called his, the caravan he lived in before he died, he named it after this air. The recording isn't it absolutely fantastic, but it's a lovely playing. Well, what's interesting is you said it's from the field, so yes, it's, a kind it's of field authentic recording. out there in the air. That's it, that's it. Um, so yeah, we'll sign off with this. Hope you enjoyed. And we'll, we'll see, see you next again. time. Thank you, Lance. Peace and all.